Also, a welcome to all the latecomers. I guess London is one of these places where the abbreviation ETA doesn't mean estimated time of arrival, but earliest time of arrival. Um, we, of course, read already our text. It is Mark 11, uh, but the stories are well known. Uh, there's the story usually known as the cleansing of the temple and then the withered fig tree. Now, these are well-known stories. But if you really think about it, they raise many questions. And if you have these questions, you would not be the only one. The philosopher Bertrand Russell wrote an essay in 1927 titled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And there he argues that a divine figure would either know that the tree would not have any figs or could have simply produced them by a miracle. And thus he finds the story not very logical. And then he also comments, it is a rather curious story of the fig tree, which always rather puzzled me. You remember what happened about the fig tree, and then he recites the story we just read. And he says, it, this is a very curious story, because it was not the right time of year for figs. And you could not really blame the tree. And then he concludes, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. Now, why wouldn't you not agree? And then there is more. These are the last miracles of the Lord Jesus, both. Now, usually miracles are of healing or bringing comfort. But here the tree dies. And usually the Lord is stern but gentle with compassion. But in the temple it is all rather violent. And then what is the meaning of the withered tree? And when Peter Paul points at the tree, what does then the comment mean? Have faith in God, have confidence, trust God when praying and forgive the other. What has that got to do with the withered tree? And then the story is often called the cleansing of the temple. But did he want to clean or restore it then? But before the week is out, he has said the temple will be destroyed. So why bother cleansing it? Now you probably know the television program about buying houses. It's called Location, Location. Because, of course, location is very important when you buy a house. And in a way, it's the same with understanding a text. Because then you need to look at the context context. So we will look at the context. Now first of course there is here the context of Mark's gospel and we are here in our story in the Passion Week. It's the week of the Passover and Jerusalem is full of pilgrims, thousands to celebrate, to sacrifice and to pay the temple tax. place is completely overcrowded and then somewhat on the late side Jesus comes up from down the valley of the Jordan, from Jericho, and he makes, as we read, the triumphal entry. 
And then there is the inspection of the temple. And then we see that there is a rapidly escalating confrontation with the Jewish establishment. There is the prophecy of the destruction of the temple. There is the betrayal. There is the sham trial. There is the execution. There is the cross. And all that is to occur within this week. And in our story, we are probably Monday or Tuesday. And then, of course, there is also the geographical context. We read that the Lord and his disciples go back and forth from the temple to Bethany. And in doing that, they would have to cross the Mount of Olives. Now try to see in your mind's eye with me the scenery here. You come from Bethany, you go up the Mount of Olives, and then you look slightly down on the other side of a valley at a large plateau. And at the edge of that plateau sits the temple. And you see it there, white and shiny in all its glory. First you go through a deep valley, the valley of the Kidron. Then there is a steep embankment and there is the wall, the colonnades around a large courtyard, the court of the Gentiles, and then there is the temple. And if you wanted to go to Jerusalem, you either had to go around the temple, which the Lord Jesus did during the triumphal entry along the fort of the Romans, or you could take a footpath and have a little gate and cross the temple courtyard. And then there is another piece of historical context. There is some historical evidence that there used to be a market for these animals for the sacrifices down in the valley of the Kidron or maybe on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And that was, of course, for the convenience of the pilgrims. You could buy there your approved cattle and doves and you could exchange there for money the special coin that you used to pay the temple tax. And that market of the mark, these markets had been under the jurisdiction and therefore, of course, also a source of income for the Sanhedrin, a broad meeting of priests and of Pharisees. But recently, probably a couple of years before our story, at the initiative of the high priest Caiaphas, all or part of that market had been moved to the temple court. And guess what? It was now under the jurisdiction of the high priestly family. And of course it was a better location, it was closer. And it's like shops with an A location. There is more business and of course more rent for the temple or for the priest. You could follow the money as it were and know what was going on. And commercially it was a pretty good ruse and as religious records go it was nicely effective But, of course, the temple had been reduced to a business. Now, with that background in mind, let us turn now to the text. And I would like to summarize for you Mark's message this morning as follows. The Lord proclaims the temple closing, but heaven opening. The Lord proclaims the temple closing, but heaven opening. And we learn two things. The first one is that religious ritual does not redeem. And in the second place, 
that only faithful prayer brings forgiveness. So the Lord proclaims the temple closing but heaven opening. And then there is in the first place the lesson that religious ritual does not redeem. If you look at the text and you look at verse 11, it's often put with, uh, also in our Bibles, with the story of the entry. But it is really a transition verse because the sections are intertwined deliberately. He inspected the temple, it says, his father's house, built by his ancestors, Solomon and Zerubbabel, and the liturgy for the temple service designed by his forefather David. Now, his visit was not the trip of a gaping tourist, because the Lord Jesus had seen the temple many times before. But it was the visitation by the son of the sovereign who had just entered Jerusalem as the king. And the temple was the footstool of God on earth, with the glory cloud in the past representing the presence of God, the symbol that God would be with Israel, the very place where the sacrifices symbolized the reconciliation between the sinner and God. And what does he see? And what do you see as you look over his shoulder? Well, still the temple is the heart and the center of Israel's national and religious existence. It just so happens that it has become a combination of ritual and commerce. And that is what the Lord saw at this inspection late that evening after his journey from Jericho and his kingly entry into Jerusalem. And the sacrifices were continuing as usual. And now with the Passover at a large scale, thousands of pilgrims with their sacrifices have descended on Jerusalem, all in need of an animal and, of course, preferably not to be schlepped all the way to Jerusalem from home and all in need of the special temple tax coin. And all of that was now conveniently provided at the temple in Caiaphas Market, in the court of the Gentiles. And in the hustle and the bustle of the market, the people had come to use the temple court as a shortcut into the valley of the Kidron and the Mount of Olives. And the old rules of respect that exist, we know, like you couldn't enter the temple court with a staff in your hand, like you were going on a big journey, or a wallet going on business, using it as a shortcut, they'd all fallen by the wayside. Now, the temple and its sacrifices were, and some of you are studying the book of Hebrews and you can read it there extensively, they were to point to Christ and to remind of sin. We read in Hebrews, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So the temple was supposed to be a reminder of sin and of the need of redemption and a pointing to the need of the once and for all Savior. But all that is lost in the great din of the souk. And that long-awaited Savior had arrived, but he is ignored. 
And the Hosanna crowd has dissipated and the leaders are antagonistic. And they see a threat to their authority and to the way that they had organized religion. David's great son had finally come. And that is what he finds when he expects, when he inspects his father's house. And then we read that the Lord departs to outside the city, Bethany. Maybe there was no space in Jerusalem, more likely because he was then outside the immediate reach of the priest. They might have otherwise sent the temple police to lift him from his bed at night, as they did on the, at the first opportunity they had when he stayed close by in the garden. And then we read that the next morning, on his way into Jerusalem, the Lord starts preparing his disciples for what will happen that day. And he sees a fig tree in full leaf. And beyond it, as you come across the top of the Mount of Olives, they will have seen the temple in all its beauty. And in the report that Mark gives us, we hear these things. He was hungry, and he went to look for something. He had the reasonable expectation to find something. And we don't hear the disciples say, you know, don't bother. We also read that he looked for something. The word fix isn't actually used. So it's not necessarily the normal fix, but whatever he was looking for, he didn't find it. And then Mark reports that he speaks to the tree. The word curse is actually used by Peter, but not in the speech itself. And he is not angrily muttering under his breath. No, it is, says our text quite explicitly, in the hearing of the disciples, they were meant to hear it. And then, maybe surprisingly, Mark tells us, completely voluntarily, that it was not the season for figs. Now, what to make of that? Is Bertrand Russell right? Was this petulant or ill-tempered or unreasonable behavior? Well, clearly, Mark doesn't see it that way, because he speaks and he adds his comment without any kind of embarrassment. He could have left it out. Now, just to spend a moment on the fig tree, it gets into leaf and shortly followed by the first fruit sometime in April. These first fruits are small, and it is quite common for them to drop off very quickly, and they're not really meant for eating, unless you are very hungry. And then there is the regular, the second crop of the useful fruits later in that year after the summer. Now, at Passover, somewhere in March, to see a tree in leaf, full leaf, visible from afar, is very early, although apparently not unheard of in the sheltered spots on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. So the tree, unusually early maybe, clearly suggested that there could be some fruit. Not yet the real fruit, but the first fruit. Not great to eat, but it would do if you were very hungry. Now, if you look at the story... According to one of the church fathers, Papias, the gospel by Mark is really the report of the teachings and the recollections of the Apostle Peter. And it was therefore recognized in the early church as an, apost as an apostolic book. And it reads, indeed, like 
an eyewitness account, and you get a very vivid picture in the story. Jesus was hungry, and the leaves are visible from afar. And then he goes there, and then there is the disappointment. Leaves, leaves, but nothing but leaves. Full of shiny, promising leaves. And the whole outward appearance suggested that there might be fruit, but in reality there was nothing, not even these first fruits. And Jesus, on his way to the temple that he had inspected that evening before, he gives his verdict. And it is couched in surprisingly broad and general terms. From now on, not forever shall anyone derive any benefit from such a tree. A tree with promising leaves but no fruit. And then Mark's comment, for it wasn't the time for figs. It remains somewhat enigmatic, doesn't it? If he meant that it wasn't really the time for the regular figs, he was probably explaining why Jesus had to look for something. He had to search for the small first fruits, and then he didn't find any. So the comment is then on why he had to search rather than on why he didn't find anything. But I think it is more likely that Mark is saying that although there was the promise of possibly first fruits, it was not unusual or surprising that there weren't any. And by doing so, he is drawing away attention from the tree and from the question whether there was anything wrong with this particular tree. Because that, of course, was not the point. The Lord Jesus did not go around on earth checking out fig trees and marking them. And therefore, Mark wants us to focus on the symbolic meaning. The leaves suggested that there might be fruit, but the appearance was misleading. And in that case, he would be looking ahead, reflecting on the rest of the narrative. And then, of course, the story continues, and they journey on to the temple. And what he saw there, I think you got the picture. Striving businesses and full wallets all around, impressive temple buildings and busy rituals, but cold hearts and an empty religion, a nationalistic happening, and the foreigners squeezed out. Now, people have often wondered how it was possible that the Lord Jesus achieved the eviction. Literally, it says he started to throw them out. There were hundreds of people and a multitude of animals. And I think under normal circumstances, a few well-built stallholders would have put an end to such an action. And what about the temple police? And therefore, it must have been a second miracle that day. His authority was such that he cleared that large courtyard and was able to stop all that shortcut traffic. And what we are looking at, the miracle, is often called the cleansing of the temple. But I think that is a bit of a misnomer, because we do not read about any cleansing or sanctifying action, and these words are not used. We read about a verdict about exposing the hollowness of the religious rituals. Now, I don't think the Lord had any problem with the business itself. He may have passed these markets in the, in the, in the past. They had been there for a very long time in the valley, and we do not hear about any problems. And it is also not just the sellers who, as possible profiteers, are condemned, because both the sellers and the buyers are thrown out. 
The verdict was on the business being conducted in the temple, and the verdict was very much on those who had organized and allowed that. At the end of the day, it was a verdict on their underlying attitude towards God. Because there was not faith and there was not a deep respect and no awe for Israel's God, nor gratitude for his presence in their midst. But a ritualistic, unspiritual worship. All going through the motions and the forms and the rituals and the words, but no substance and no love. And the leading priest, well, they thought nothing about the commerce and the commotion on the court, which was for the prayer of the foreigners, as long as it furthered their power and finance. And the Lord's quotation from Jeremiah, and by that one sentence in verse 17, he refers to that whole section is significant. He says, you have made it a cave of robbers. Now, the section we read in Jeremiah 7 is from just before the exile. And the message is, the temple will not save you if you do not live in obedience. But there will be judgment unless you turn to the Lord. And that, of course, is what happened a few years later in the exile. And we read, will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely, burn incense to Baal and walk after other gods whom you do not know? Really, living your life like I don't exist? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, we are safe, we are safe. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? And therefore I will do to this house, which is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to this place which I gave you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. Now, the fate of Shiloh was that the Lord had departed. It's the story of Eli in 1 Samuel 4, and the ark being taken into battle and lost. At that time, there was no faith and no obedience, and they treated God as an artifact, like the temple. And they took the ark into battle. The ritual was there. They treated the ark as a talisman, but they lost. And Shiloh was never the place of God again. And through this quotation, now the Lord referring to both the ark and the tabernacle at Shiloh and the temple in Jerusalem, he warns them again. It happened before. And your religious center will be destroyed if there is no faith. The rituals will not save you. And indeed, he explicitly repeats that later that week in the Olivet Discourse that the temple will be destroyed. And now you can see that the escalation, the confrontation with the priest, they heard Jesus, and they certainly got the message that was implied in that quotation. And they understood that their whole system, the way of the temple, the way the temple business was conducted, was severely criticized and exposed them as a sham, as an empty God-offending ritual. Temple, temple, they shouted in Jeremiah's time, but there would be no redemption and no salvation. Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed the temple and took them into exile. So when the priest heard that comparison with Jeremiah's accusation, they figured that the threat of destruction was the same. And that's why, in our text, they tried to kill him. Not openly yet, because they are afraid of the public opinion, which is still amazed. 
about the Lord Jesus. And to prevent them, the priest, from acting in secret at night, we read that the Lord again withdraws to Bethany. And so we learn then in the first place the Lord's condemnation of empty religious ritual which does not redeem. And the tree with only the appearance, the full leaves, was going to die. And the message in the action against the tree and in words in the quotation from Jeremiah was that the temple and the emptual ritual is closing. But then also heaven is opening. And therefore we will in the second place hear that heaven is opening because faithful prayer will bring forgiveness. Now you may have noticed that we skipped the first part of the Lord's quotation in verse 17, the bit from Isaiah. And we also have not touched upon the answer to Peter. Now, in that first part of the quotation, the Lord refers to the bit we read in Isaiah 56. And the message there is, everyone, everyone who believes with his whole heart, everyone who is obedient, they will have access to my house. No other pre-qualifications. They will be my children, and they will have redemption. Because keeping my Sabbath is not referred to as an outward sign or a boundary marker of, Jew, of the Jewish nation, but it is actually the opposite. It is shorthand for really believing, really following me. So Isaiah had already prophesied, all nations will pray to the Lord. And there is already a clear hint that what matters is belief and faith. We read there, do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. And let not the eunuch who was not allowed in the temple say, here I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, my promise to you, even to them, I will give in my house and within my walls a place. So everyone who keeps the Sabbath and holds fast the Lord's promise, even them, says Isaiah, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. And their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer of all the nations. Now, at the time Isaiah made this prophecy, it is still deeply into the Old Testament. So redemption was to a large extent equated with being part of God's people, the Jews, and still equated with access to the temple, which the foreigners and the eunuchs normally did not have. But already then there is this prophecy that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. That is the quote that the Lord Jesus makes. And what we saw is that exactly the possibility that for foreigners to pray in the courts of the Gentiles, that the nationalistic leaders had made it impossible 
in their quest for money. So the text is quoted and the section is referred to in its entirety because the Jews, of course, many of them couldn't read or write, memorized the Old Testament. So one quote is a pointer to the whole text. So the Lord indicates here, underlining through his quotation, also the other side of the coin, the encouragement. Because where there is faith, there is access to God. There is the relationship that existed between God and man in paradise, where they walked in peace and harmony in the cool of the day, and that will be restored. That was the message from Isaiah. And for the priests, it was a reminder of what they had forgotten. But for the crowd and for us, it is an encouragement. Because after the words, the Lord and the disciples leave, and they pass by the tree, and it's withered from the root, actually, totally condemned, no chance of recovery. Not the eunuch was a dry tree, but the temple ritual and its followers. And then when Peter points that out and expresses his surprise, the Lord answers, have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. And therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now, it is a beautiful text, but of course you may wonder, what kind of an answer is that? How does that comment respond to or relate to the fate of the tree? Now, there are some commentators who suggest that it is not related. It was a spare saying, saying, a quotation of the Lord Jesus, and for want of a better place, Mark put it here. But whenever people start saying these kind of things, it's usually lazy exegesis. The Lord picks up the theme of the prayer again that he had mentioned at the temple event. And the implications of that quotation, that reference to the house of prayer, are now drawn out. For the urgent question might well come up, Lord, if you, are pre- if you are now predicting the demise of the temple, where are we to pray? Where will we find your presence in our midst? For the Jews, the answer to that question had always been the temple in Zion. Even the surrounding nations knew that much about the Jewish religion. We looked a little while ago at the story of the Samaritan woman. Well, it wasn't a very clever woman, but that she knew. But there also the Lord says in his answer to her, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. And then the Lord proceeds to clarify for the disciples very much in parallel what he had said to the Samaritan woman, what it means if the temple is no longer there. Because God can be accessed and prayed to everywhere. He is in heaven, 
but because of the Lord's imminent suffering, heaven is open. That is what the letter to the Hebrews goes on about at great length. Open as long as they worship in spirit and in truth, or as it is put here, if you have faith, if you trust God, if your prayer and your worship is from the heart in full confidence, and if you live in obedience And he gives one example, one outworking of that living in obedience. If your sins are forgiven because of what I am going to suffer, then you will forgive those around you yourself. It is the same lesson that he had given them earlier in the parable of the two slaves in debt in Matthew 18. So there is here the conclusion and the reminder, it is all about the forgiveness of sins that the Lord was about to achieve so that we can live close to God and so that we can and should live in gratitude and then demonstrate that in us forgiving others. So briefly then and in closing, the surprising miracles at the barren temple and the withered tree They teach us many things. First, there is what you may think is a technical point. The way the Lord himself uses the scripture in his answer to the priest, and the way Mark and Peter give us the report of the Lord's word and his actions in his last week on earth, intertwining the story of the tree in the temple, they tell us clearly that God's word needs to be read in context. First in pericope, pericope in book, book in canon. There cannot be any lazy reading, not even if you are Bertrand Russell. But then, more importantly, the content. His words are always meant for our salvation. Words of warning, words of encouragement. Warning, because it is so easy to fall into the routine of the religious ritual. We go to church, we go to the meetings, we keep the Sabbath, we read the monthly record, we pay our dues in gift aid and think it's fine. Now all these things are important. And if they're not there, one might well say with the Apostle James, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have the works? But if it is only a religious ritual, it does not redeem because our heart needs to be in it. But then there is also encouragement, because when our heart is in in it, then we are always close to the Lord. It does not matter where we are, Jerusalem, London, Edinburgh, and it does not matter in what situation we are, in the church, at home, in a free country, persecuted, and it doesn't matter who we are, a eunuch, the foreigner, or the Jew. Then we have access to God. And then we have, as the writer of the the letter to the Hebrews puts it, access to the heavenly temple. And then we have forgiveness of sins. And then we have peace with God. Peace with God through the once and for all sacrifice of the Lord, who is speaking here shortly before the cross. And that cross is the real context. And it looms already large over our text. And therefore, will you not forget 
that terrible sacrifice? And will you love him with all your heart? Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you to thank you for your word in which we learn about your way to the cross, in which we learn how you suffered for us and therefore heaven is open and we may be at peace with God. And Father, we have heard that it was a difficult road. And Father, we have also learned that it's easy to fall into the routine. And therefore, we ask you, be with us. And keep our heart burning for you, so that we may become a living testimony to your grace. And that it also may be true for your church, so that people may look at it and see and wonder and wish to join in that peace with you. Father in heaven, we ask it not because we deserve it, but because of the Lord Jesus. Amen.